Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show's World Cup Guide. Today, we're going to be walking through everything you need to know about the upcoming World Cup that begins this weekend. We're going to be going through six segments with six different special guests. I'm really, really excited about having loads of the best football minds around talking to me on today's show. We're going to be talking top storylines of the World Cup with Seb Stafford-Bloor. We're going to be talking about favourites with Amitai Winehouse. We're going to be talking top scorers with Mr. Peter Rutzler. We talk with some of the best young stars at this tournament with Jeff Ruter. We talk with the surprises that might shock you with John McKenzie. And then at the end, we're going to be talking letdowns or potential letdowns with Richard Amofa. Really excited about getting into these segments. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get into it. So I'm delighted to be joined for our first segment on this preview show by TIFO Football, Seb Stafford-Bloor. Seb, how are you doing? Welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Jack. No, thank you for coming on. And we're going to start this off with top storylines, which mm. is, I suppose, one of the the more controversial elements of this World Cup. It's easy enough to talk about players and uh, and who we think is going to be top scorer, but there's a lot to get through here. So I'm going to throw it to you and we'll we'll work through them as, as best we can. Yeah, so are we doing it in any particular order or should we just go? I think we just go. Yeah, I think Messi, I think that story is really interesting. Like I think, um, I think you mean following European football this season, there have been a few um, potential Argentinian teammates who have not phoned it in but dialed it back a little bit because they're aware of what this means this is his last he, this is his last go at it also I think it's really interesting that that correlates with one of the strongest Argentinian teams I've seen in really really long time like we're used to Argentina going to a World Cup with bag loads of talent not necessarily always with it all working and being cohesive and ma- making any sort of sense and not with the record that they do that they have at the moment on the Scalini it's, it's an amazing you know forget it's an easy thing to say forget Messi right but if you think about where Scaloni has come from yeah. like his coaching journey and if that ends with a World Cup win that's an amazing tale um, yeah. so that's going to be going to be something really really interesting I think I think it's incredible to think that you know what we four years back we were talking about where are Argentina they're a mess they they fell out obviously you know it's no, no disgrace to lose to France in the in the previous World Cup obviously but the way that they played didn't belie any sort of confidence and Scaloni was given that job you know as you say as a kind of temporary measure because there wasn't yeah. any money in the AFA and they were like oh we can't afford to put someone else in so you can have it for a while until we sort our stuff out and has turned things around so considerably in such a short amount of time in football terms. Yeah, and I, and I think actually, and this is really a measure of like any international job performance. Like, if you think about the teams going to the World Cup, I think of, of all of them, Argentina feels like the most like a club side. 
yeah. in terms of kind of the atmosphere that's there and the way you hear players talking about international duty. It's quite rare. Like certainly contrast it with some of the things we've, we've seen going into tournaments previously, um, which feels like a kind of disparate group of players round together, do your best, see what happens. Um, don't worry too much about the climate or the opposition. Um, they feel like, I think if you're beating Argentina in the knockout rounds, I think you're going somewhere good as an opposition team. Um, yeah. I think that's probably a, a good way of putting it. Yeah, I, I think this is it. And and you kind of touched on it with the Messi thing. And I think for so many years, or at least in the years since that 2010 adventure, if you will, mm. what we've seen <laughs> is Argentina <laughs> basically be like, just give Messi the ball and, and hope he's going to do something with it. And for the first time in ages, it feels like, yes, he's still a completely key pivot in his team yeah of course he's one of the players that they're going to look to in the big moments but if Messi is triple marked out of a game as he was a lot in the last tournament in Russia it feels like Argentina are like well we will punish you in other ways so you can no longer do that to us that's not how yeah. we operate anymore and I think that's plus the fact that he's finally won silverware and that kind of burden has been taken off his shoulders suddenly puts us in a space where we're looking at it and going yeah okay why not there's nothing holding back this side well, also, I think that really suits where he is as a player at this point in his career. Like previously, like what you needed to see or what the kind of the onus was on Messi being the kind of the dynamic force, which at his age now he can't be. It just so happens at a time when he does have these pieces, he's playing probably some of the best playmaking football of his career. Like that that might be hyperbole. I don't know. Um, yet to see how kind of his league uh, form translates into a World Cup. But he's a player reborn. I feel like last season it was kind of a... There was a, a victory lap sense to his his time at Paris Saint-Germain. It was a little bit of a kind of um, Harlem Globetrotter situation. Whereas now he's genuinely playing really, really excellently. And he's learned, well not learned, it's quite a ridiculous thing to say about Lionel Messi, but he's adapted around some of those other players. And okay, there's no Mbappe at, you know, for Argentina, but there is a, there is a Lautaro Um and that's a hell of a, a hell of an asset to take to a World Cup. And similarly, you've got other little sort of understated threats. Like I, I'm really interested about what, what Rodrigo de Paul will do at the World Cup. Yeah. Um, he's a little bit of an enigma as a player, as you know. Like I, you're never quite sure what you're going to get with him. And he's not even a kind of a universally loved player. But I think his presence in that midfield is very interesting too. And, and it's just, there's all sorts of, um, there's all sorts of intrigue about Argentina. Feels like they've been let off the leash a little bit, I think, which is which is nice. You know, you see Rodrigo yeah. de Paul and what he does for Simeone Atleti, and obviously that's not a good arbiter of where anybody is as a player, <laughs> especially in, not in, this especially season. Attacking <laughs> players, right? But yeah. when you see him playing in that kind of free eight role for Argentina, you're yeah. like, well, you do what you like, man. And and it's a real yeah. shame that we're not going to see Gio Celso next to him because I really like what the two of them did and, and the way yeah. they dovetailed in in the Copa America. But I think there's just that space for players to express themselves in Scaloni's team, and maybe that's the advantage of having a coach who's not quite as rigid or, or who has, yeah. has had the years of formation that he knows exactly what he wants to do. He's gone, okay, I'm going to put you out in, in, a, in a situation that I think you can thrive in. And then it's up to you to make the pieces work. And those players are seizing that responsibility and, and, and kind of thriving on it. Nail on the head, Jack, because it's about, it's about coaching humility, isn't it, really? Because you get some guys who, you know, they, they want to be the high priest of something. They have to stand for something tactically. Whereas in this situation, like, Scaloni had no choice but to be uh, kind of pliable um, and to adapt around what he had. And that's exactly the right coach for a lot of these players at the right time. Like, you mentioned Chiela Thelso. I, I think that's kind of sad because, obviously, his reputation has been quite badly damaged by what happened at Spurs. And he's 
um, recovered to a certain extent at Villarreal. Uh, but it could have been a great showcase for him to to be that component part in a very good side, which I don't think he's had the opportunity to be yet. And Villarreal to an extent, but not on this kind of level, obviously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, let's roll on to our second topic. These are going to be quick fire and fast, as you might imagine. Well, okay, so the second one, and I don't think this is worth as quite as much debate, but France interests me uh, for two reasons. Firstly, because... Um, yeah, a few injuries. Um, obviously, Christopher Nkuku is is out, and that's. I don't think that really has an effect on the um, uh, on the first eleven, so yeah. to speak. I know you don't really think of the, in those terms in a, in a World Cup, but the big one is in midfield. Like, I, I'm interested in what happens when you spend four years planning to have a midfield of Kante and Pogba, and you don't have either player. I don't like. I I'm sold on. Um, the individual quality of France, and I'm sold on the kind of the extremities. I, I know they can hurt anybody. I understand that. But when you take building blocks out of a side, like fundamental aspects of it, and also if you think about Kante, Kante has been in decline for a while. Um, that's yeah, yeah. no secret. Um, he's had a wonderful career. But then I think if you look back at how particularly Chelsea have had to adapt to both his waning powers, but also um, his increasingly regular absences, there's always a problem. You have to, like, it's not necessarily a problem you can't solve, but there's always a problem because he's such a unique player. And um, if, you, if you think of the role that he plays, he is that player of his generation in my mind. Like, he, he, he kind of embodies the sort of the, um, the many different parts of the job description that you've got to fulfill to play in that, in that sort of area. Um, so that's a big question. I, I, I think that's... Um, I, I, I'm still not... I don't, feel, I don't feel sold on France, which is, let's not release this... You know, let's hope this doesn't go anywhere after the World Cup and they won it. But it feels um, I didn't I didn't expect to feel that way about them ahead of the tournament. I'll no, it that way. I agree, and and I think what you're looking at here, especially in this midfield, and I, I like that you referenced Chelsea there because I often have friends who will say, "Oh, we'll be all right when Kante comes back." Well, you won't because he'll be out again a month yep. later and you can't start to bank on a player who's had that many injuries at this point in his career. Now, look, it's incredibly yeah. sad. No one's taken away from that. And we would love to see N'Golo Kante in his pomp at this World Cup, you know, in that swan song. But France should have been planning for this for a while because yeah. the chances of it happening were always there. And, you know, Pogba has been hit and miss in terms of where he's been in his club career. But for France, he's always delivered, I think. Exactly and, and you're looking that. at a player here yeah. who is so integral to how they work. And suddenly it's like, oh, God, how do we fill this gap? And look, Deschamps, I think, is naturally conservative in the way that he's going to approach situations. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Adrian Rabio in the starting 11 for that first game. Now, look, Rabio's had a good couple of weeks. He, he, you know, he's, he's had a good... I agree with you. I, I just, it's just what Rabio represents, which makes me laugh. Yeah. Really want that. And, you know, his mum's probably going to be in the dressing room giving the team talk. But, you know, you look at the different elements of how this is and you go, okay, do you go with the all Real Madrid midfield of Camavinga and Chiuameni. Mm. Do you throw it back a little bit and go, well, Yusuf Fofana and Chiuameni had a really nice relationship at Monaco. They know each other well. Would they be the players you'd throw in? And then you go, okay, what's Deschamps going to do? He's going to throw Rabiot in and maybe Genduzzi because he knows those players and he trusts them. And that might hamper France. I, I couldn't agree more. Like the, Also, I think the thing with Camavinga, who is a wonderful player and will um, continue to get better, obviously, but... Um, you never know how people are going to respond to what happened to him with the Nkenko incident. Like, it's not absolutely not his fault. And yet, um, being targeted on social media like that, what, five days ahead of your first World Cup game, that's a, that's a horrible thing. I also, um, 
I think Germany is going to be uh, around the um, Ballon d'Or shortlist for much of his career. I think he's going to be an amazing player. I just have a few question marks about uh, not his ability, but just his levels of experience. And um, I think if you've watched um, much Real Madrid this season, there's been the occasional moment where you think you forgive it because it's a naivety and it's what you expect to see in a player's first season at a club like Real Madrid. Um, and also because you you see Modric, you see Cruz, um, you know, you see Valverde, um, and they're playing to an incredibly high standard. So you think, well, it's not going to matter in the grand scheme of things over a 38-game um, season, but over the course of a... Um, a campaign across, you know, La Liga and the Champions League. I just wonder, I mean, and Gunduzi, Gunduzi is gifted, but uh, to me child. still, well, to me, I, I don't see much difference uh, from a personality standpoint to the player left Arsenal. Still volatile, still um, prone to bad moments. I think of that, that, um, that goal that uh, Marseille conceded against Spurs a couple of weeks ago, where he gives the ball away. Um, he doesn't react to the break that Hoiberg leads and then when he finally does, he spends most of the time jogging back and shouting at his teammates when he's doing it. It's like, okay, that's all fine because desperate situation. But you're, you're thinking about the differences between uh, playing for Marseille in a, a losing situation, which, you know, they, they need to try and score a goal. They, they want to, who wants to be in the, in the conference league, right? Or out of Europe altogether. You need to, either you, either you advance or you, sorry, or you get into the Europa League and, um, you know, why not throw everything at it? Sure. Big difference between that and anchoring a an international midfield in the World Cup. I don't think Gwendoza is up to that at all. Um, and also he's going to have to live with the Kante comparison if he does. And he, he can't. He's just the wrong player for that. And and so the ghost of like 2010 being not too far in the past and some of the tensions within the French squad that like always, like French football cycle always seems to be the same. It's always boom and bust. It's always boom and bust. And um, maybe I'm being led by that. I don't know. But it's just, it's not as good a preparation as you'd hope there would be. Also, there's the curse to think of, right? Every every <laughs> every World Cup winner goes out in the group stages. Yeah, so yeah. we'll see if that one continues. <laughs> yes, indeed. But uh, we'll roll on to our third and final topic, Seb. Okay, so this one's a little bit more abstract, Jack, in the sense that um, it's about conditioning. So it's not a headline as such. It's a, I, uh, I read a, the FIFA Pro, a FIFA Pro report that came out um a couple of days ago about conditioning the overexposure of players to minutes um and the burden on players today and i so less a headline more a curiosity like i i don't know what this tournament looks like as a result of that because you've got this big discrepancy between um most of the nations that draw all of their players or most of their players from europe or european um like high-ranking european clubs and teams who don't and what you have in a kind of um uh, cumulative minutes sense is a big gap between players who've been flogged for months and months and months and months without rest um, and players who are a little bit underdone for the tournament and then you've got the fatty middle so no one really has the perfect preparation uh, least of all because uh, not least because uh, ordinarily as you know like in a, in a World Cup cycle you get the end of the season you get that 30 day period where you play sort of really tedious friendly games but you, you get rest and recovery so international teams haven't been able to kind of regularize uh, the condition of any of these players none of the medical staffs with any of these squads will have been done will have been able to do anything significant in terms of preparing them um, or adjusting sleep patterns or jet lag or anything like that and so what you're left with is just a massive question mark okay like I, I I don't know how 
for instance, England fans will, will know there are two, there are very much two Harry Canes. There's the fit Harry Kane, um, who uh, is one of the best players in the world. And then there's the um, jaded or recovering from injury Harry Kane, who um, lumbers around a little bit, whose first touch isn't very good, who doesn't see that kind of, that pass around the corner that he that he depends on and which actually England depends upon if they have to get, you know, fullbacks and wide forwards into the game and to actually do proper damage. And um, so that's, you know, while that's always a question for England, I think it's a question for dozens of players this time. Yeah. Um, and it's, um, I have absolutely no idea what to, re- to expect. And actually, I think it's tempering. Um, I don't have that sort of uh, enthusiasm for the World Cup yet. And there's more reasons than just conditioning for that, clearly. But um, this is part of that package. It's um, it's a complete unknown. Yeah, I think we saw that hurricane against Nottingham Forest in in, in the cup, yes. right? And then you're going, okay, is that yeah. the hurricane that we're going to see in Qatar? Because if it is, England are in trouble, I, yes. I think. And 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 so th- there's a lot of this, but I think the Nkunku injury, obviously, incredibly sad to see, and 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 a, mm. a freak accident in in many ways in terms of the the collision. But I'd be very surprised if that's the last injury we see pre World Cup, and I think that speaks to everything. And you know, you're seeing players. You know, I saw Anthony Robinson an hour after Fulham finished that game with Manchester United, he was on a plane and I was like, okay, right. We're, we're doing this. This, this is how we're doing it. And it does worry me that, you know, we're going to come into this world cup and we're just, I feel like players are going to just fall. And and as we go through this tournament, yeah. we could be in the semifinals and, you know, people down to squads of 17, 18. And that, that stresses me out. Well, that I couldn't agree more, but also, you know, there's a big difference between players actually making it onto the pitch during the World Cup and being the best representation of themselves. So I think of someone like Sadio Mane, who still unclear um, when we're recording this, sort of how many games he'll miss. But think about, right, you, you won the Africa Cup of Nations and you have this opportunity um, to to be part of a really special Senegalese squad because you know, they're very, very talented. And um, in my money, they're better than the 2002 squad. Um, and he may well make it onto the pitch, but are you going to see Sadio Mane as Sadio Mane? Are you going to see a sort of 75%? And you could say the same thing about someone like Alfonso Davis. I, th- I think that's really sad, potentially. Like, I, I, a country that's waited so long yep. to get back to the World Cup. And I, I know they'll they'll be there as, as hosts in 2026, but um, he's been in, integral to the journey. And he's such a dynamic, explosive player that if you have a conditioning issue or if you're not quite right, you just you deny the opportunity to be the best version of yourself. And I, I think that's so counter to what the World Cup should be that um, it's natural to worry and, and to, to, to have that kind of anxiety ahead of the tournament. Yeah, I think it's pervading everything. I think you think you're 100%. absolutely right. And um, before we finish, Seb, I just wanted to ask you about the new Tifo book because ah. uh, here it's, it's out on shelves. So I hear. It's out on the shelves, actually out on my desk too. It's right here. Um, yeah, no, it's out on the 17th of November. Um, it's um, it's available everywhere. Um, we're still working out a distribution plan for um, America, but it's available digitally um, in all the usual places. And it's uh, 52 rules for... Uh, rules like we, we wanted to create something which was for, for everybody. So for your usual TFI watcher, um, 
you know, people that will happily watch every single game of the World Cup. We also wanted to provide something for um, people who perhaps, uh, you know, this might be the first World Cup or they're kind of dipping their toe in the game and, and, and sort of seeing if they like it. And um, so we've we've tried to kind of create that kind of footballing buffet. I hope we've managed it. Um, but yeah, we, we, we deal with pretty wide range of topics across 52 chapters, which we've got sports washing in there. We, we, we explain why, um, you know, penalty boxes have Ds. We talk about, um, you know, uh, Burnley parking two buses, not just one under, under Sean Daesh and, you know, talking about warm weather training. So a little bit of everything. Um, I have to say like it, it looks beautiful and it's nothing to do with me at all. That's, um, that's Alice designs, wonderful illustration. It really is, um, yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's a beautiful thing to look at. Smells great as well. It has that really nice like new, new book, book smell? Right? No, nothing no, like right? It. Uh, no, but yeah, um, I think my my favorite thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna just gloss over that as a selling point and uh, and roll on, especially with the digital copies. Um, but look, it looks absolutely beautiful, and I can't wait to to get stuck into it. But for now, thank you so much for popping on, Seb. Thanks, Jack. This is going to be a rolling train of guests today, and I'm excited to introduce our second guest for our second segment, Mr. Amitai Winehouse, news editor at The Athletic. Amitai, how you doing, mate? I'm good. I'm good, Jack. How you doing? Yeah, I'm well. I'm well. I'm enjoying this. I'm getting to speak to all manner of people. I'm having a, a lovely old day, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, you and I are going to talk tournament favourites, so I'm basically going to hand the bat to you, and we'll see what we get through. Cool. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um... Yeah, I mean it's it's going to be a fascinating tournament, isn't it? I think I think, I think so. uh, sorry, yeah, sorry. Um, I think my standout uh, favorite for the tournament personally is uh, Brazil. I think they're probably the most interesting team going into it because I think historically Brazil are just like the obvious name that anyone would pick out for any major international tournament, but in the last few years they just haven't quite been there. But it's been quite interesting with them because they've kept Tite in the role. He's like always been the head coach through this sort of run of of slightly underwhelming performances. But I think it can be sort of excused by the fact they've not necessarily had the players. And this time round, I feel as though they 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 really do. Um, I think that if you have a look at the squad that he's got available for him, he's got a really exciting forward line. I, I'm I'm a Leeds fan, so Rafinha is my favourite of the of the lot of them. And I have like this weird feeling that he's going to be the top scorer in Qatar. I don't know why, but maybe that sort of personal bias shining just through. Just back it, yeah. Just yeah, back yeah. it. I like it. It's, and then you've got obviously Neymar, you've got Richarlison, you've got Lucas Paqueta, you've got the solid defence, Marquinhos and Thiago Silva. You got Allison as the goalkeeper. I I I always go back to what Brian Clough uh, used to say. Um, which is that you start with your goalkeeper and Allison's probably the best in the world, if not um, Edison, who is their backup goalkeeper. <laughs> uh, and then you've got Casemiro and Fred in midfield. Um, I mean, the, the only weak point that I can see in that starting eleven really is um, Alex Tellers at left back. I, I, I'm not suggesting that Man U get all of their transfer decisions right, but the fact they've decided to let him go suggests that he's not the world's best left back, basically. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, look, it's him and Alexandro, right? I think the one condition for being a Brazilian fullback is that you have to have a similar name to your your partner in crime, if you will. We've got Danilo and Dani Alves on, on one side and then Alex Tellers and Alexandro at the other. So it's interesting to see that how good everything else is. I mean, I think Militao might well play it right back. So it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. But considering how good everything else is, the fact that there hasn't been a new generation of Brazilian fullbacks coming through to perhaps light things up is is 
may be a slight concern, but I'm with you. I, I don't see major weaknesses in this side. And considering you have a player like Rafinha on one side who has got that work rate to get back and help his fullback, Vinicius Jr. on the other, maybe it's slightly less so, but the cover in midfield should be enough to, to get doubling down on, on those things. There doesn't seem to be a point here where you go, where did Brazil slip up? And I wonder if this is a tournament and I hope it's not, but I wonder if it's a tournament that's filled with injuries and that we start to see teams hit their sort of 17th, 18th players as we get to the semi-finals. And most teams are looking at that going, well, that's going to be a major problem, but not Brazil. And that might be their trump card in the pack. No, absolutely. And I mean, you only have to look at the fact that they've not lost a game since July 2021. And that was against Argentina, who were like probably the second favourites for this competition. Yeah. And 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 you mentioned Vinicius Junior there. I massively managed to miss him out from my notes there. And and you just the fact that you can name the team without him, you pick Paqueta instead, and they still look so strong speaks for that thing. The fact that actually when it comes to that 26-man squad, it is very, very strong. So I, I'm excited to watch them. And it's it's quite nice to know that they have this capacity to play good football again because that is the stereotype about Brazil. I can't remember watching a great Brazil performance in the last few World Cups. Yeah. We're probably going to get one this time around. That's great. That's what I Yeah, it's do. exciting, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And and there is something about seeing that yellow shirt that you go, oh, it's World Cup time. And, you know, that's kind of inherent, I suppose, to maybe the era that people grow up in. But for me, seeing that shirt was like, right, Brazil are in business. We're at a World Cup. And and so to see them flying again is incredibly nice, I think, on pretty much all levels. Let's roll on to number two then. You might have already mentioned them. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think it's Argentina. I think... Um, it's going to be quite interesting. There were those quotes from Neymar, I think, today in the Telegraph, where he was basically saying that he's been joking with Messi about beating him in the World Cup final. That would be, I think, the ideal final for a lot of people. Uh, you know, when you take your own personal biases out of it in the country you might be supporting. Um, I think they're very strong. Again, Argentina are a bit of a weird one in that they're always among the favourites for tournaments. But in the last few major tournaments, barring the Copa America, They've been pretty poor, really. Yeah. Um, they've never managed to maximise the fact that they have, in in my opinion, the best player in the world in their team, in Messi. Um, they have always struggled to knit a team together. There's always been this sense, almost, that the head coach isn't the best person for the job, but is the best person to make Messi happy, which is not the best way of running an international team. Um, that's just not the case anymore. They were the last team to beat Brazil, as I said. They beat the UAE 5-0 yesterday. They have a structure that works for Messi and with Messi, but it's not just about Messi. They, um, But then, again, speaking of Messi, he's at his best that he has been for a couple of seasons. He basically had a year off last year. He stopped scoring, he stopped providing goals last season. This year, he's got 12 goals and 14 assists in 19 appearances for PSG. He's taken 138 minutes per goal and 63 minutes per goal contribution. So that's that's Messi at his absolute best. It's um, Chris numbers, isn't it? It's amazing. It's amazing. And he's not the only great player in that team. They've got Julian Alvarez, who's playing up front with him. And Alvarez is, you know, in his first season at Man City, and looks excellent. He's managed to shine, even though he's got, you know, the most exciting striker playing ahead of him. Um, there are issues, like they're not 100% all there. There are doubts over Paolo Dybala and um, Joaquin Correa's fitness. Um, I think there's a suggestion 
admittedly this isn't confirmed by anyone at the athletic and i won't take this to be like our reporting but there is a suggestion in some places that if one of them two dips out it might be um garnacho who gets the opportunity which is a bit of an interesting x factor even even if it is you know imagine that's your 26th man that's all right that is absolutely fine yeah that's that's the thing so they they have a lot of strength again i think there is a there is a bit of a there is a bit of a problem in defence in that um, on the right side they've been playing Otamendi and Juan Foyth in recent fixtures. I think I think that's just an area that you could exploit if you're an opposition team, um, but could work really well. You never know. I, I I think they've got a very good chance of being among the among the best performing sides in Qatar. Yeah, I really like this Argentina side, and and you kind of touched on it right at the top, right? In that, what what's really interesting for me is that for years it felt like it was like give the ball to Messi and hope he does something with it. And if an opposition triple marked Messi out of the game, they didn't really have any other options. They were like, oh, we just hope he wiggles through those three players and create something. Now it feels like the team is set up across the board, so they can't do that because if you triple mark Messi, we'll just release Lautaro, we'll release Julian Alvarez, we'll re- release Nico Gonzalez or Angel Di Maria on the other side. Rodrigo de Paul's playing beautifully. I'm a little bit gutted about Gilles Celso not making this World Cup because actually I thought him and De Paul were really really nice together in the last Copper, but. On the whole, you look at this side and go, who steps in? Enzo Fernandez, who's having an incredible season at Benfica. Alexis McAllister, who's been lighting it up for Brighton. These are all excellent footballers ready to make that jump. And in a side where there's so much quality around them, it just feels like everything's kind of set up for him. I, I, I too would have loved a Brazil-Argentina final, but I think they're going to meet in the semis, the way that the bracket works. I think if they both win their group, there's no chance that that's, that's going to be a thing. But equally, maybe that semi-final will just step in. And, and often, you know, semi-finals are actually better than finals in many ways. So maybe that will be the game of the tournament. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I think the, the credit has to go to Lionel Scaloni just for knitting it all together like that. The, 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 what you've just mentioned there, it, it takes a, a it takes a confident manager to go. I'm gonna not just rely on the best player in the world because, as you say, you could just give it to him and hope for the best. And it yeah. shows that it shows that Scaloni's got a thought beyond this one man. Yeah, but it also seems to have made Messi far happier than he's been in an Argentina shirt. So, I, you know, I don't think this was prima donna, I want the ball all the time. I think he was hoping that someone would come in and share the load, if you will. And and it looks like that's the, the case that's happened here. And yeah, very hot on Argentina as well. Who's next, Amazon? Um I think for me, it's probably France, but that comes with quite big caveats yeah. um, to it. The, it's it's hard to discount the team that won the tournament last time. It's, you know, they, they, they were very, very, very efficient, very effective side, not particularly beautiful. And they never really are under Deschamps, but they are like a very um, good tournament team, which I think sometimes is like an easy thing to discount when it comes to international tournaments. I, I know that might sound a bit stupid, but basically club football, you kind of have to be the best team over 38 games. That's just how it works. In an international tournament, you can be the best team for 30 minutes of seven games and win a tournament. And that's kind of what France are very good at. It's very Um, Real Madrid Champions League, isn't it? 100%. It's a completely different thing. I always think back to Chelsea winning the Champions League under Tuchel. They were definitely not the best team in the Premier League. And there's a reason why they, for example, got to every cup final when Tuchel was their manager it's that they were very very good at managing their way through games to ensure they won games rather than winning a 38 game season um and France are very good at that as well I think that if you just have to look at the two 
like major options they have up front in Benzema, who's I think probably the best pure number nine in the world. Like I don't think there's any debate over that right now. Um, and Kylian Mbappe, um, who is one of the best forwards in the world. The issue being, Benzema came back for the Euros, and I think everyone was very excited by the idea of him playing alongside Mbappe, and they did not work very well together at all. Um, so I think I think that's one of the big questions for Deschamps. I think the other one is he's had this very efficient midfield that was just perfectly balanced to deal with the fact that they could, well, basically allow them to push um, them two forward and do whatever they want. And Kante and Pogba are both out um, of this tournament. I don't know how you replace them two. I know they've got uh, Kamavinga, they've got Chiuameni, they've got others. They've got, you know, the suggestion would be that Rabiot's almost certainly going to play. Yeah. But I don't know how you replace Kante and Pogba. Like, I, Kante in the sense that this is, in my opinion, I, I like I'm happy to have a conversation about Kevin De Bruyne, who's also a brilliant midfielder. But I think in terms of like their importance to the teams that have succeeded with them in, Kante is probably the, the best midfielder in the world over the last 10 years. Um, and then you've got Pogba, who say what you will about his time at Man U, but whenever he played for France, he was absolutely brilliant. Knew exactly what his role was, did exactly what he needed to do, creatively brilliant um, defensively effective. I don't know how you. I don't know how you replace them too. Um, but then, do they need to play good football to be successful, or do they just need to give Mbappe five opportunities a game and Benzema two, and that's enough to go win the tournament? I, you know that. That's yeah, why be. I'd say they. Yeah, and that's why I'd say they are probably among the favourites. I think the other the other thing is defensively. You'd you'd love to have the options France have if you were any other country. They they just have a ludicrous. Um, sort of catalogue of defensive options to the extent that they've left Phil and Mendy at home. That just shows how strong they are, basically. Um, so, yeah, that's why I think they're my third favourites. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And I have the same qualms as you about midfield. And there's now been talk where Deschamps was like, well, without them, I might not play five at the back. And then I was like, mm, well, if you've done that, you definitely should have brought Phil or Mendy because you don't really want Teo there in that system if he's going to bomb forward and leave you exposed down that channel. But... You know, Teo's excellent. Now, that's not to, to take away from his his ability. I, but I do worry about how they do this because, you know, whoever steps into that midfield, if it's Rabiot, we know there's questions. You know, where, however he's playing for Juventus, we know there's questions about Rabiot, especially at this level and especially with what he brings temperament-wise and for maybe family-wise as well to, to the party. But then you go, all right, Camavinga and, and Chiumeni both at Real Madrid, excellent. How many games have they actually played together? You know, do you play Chiumeni and Fafana, who had that really good relationship at Monaco, don't... Is that something you're going to do? You're going to risk those two in in the middle there, and so that would be the questions. But I think when you look at that attacking core with Griezmann and, and Mbappe and Giroud and Benzema, it, it's hard to look past them as favourites. But it takes us nicely onto number four, Amatai, and the last of your your big guns, shall, shall we say? I think I think this is the one that's like slightly controversial, and I have a lot of arguments about this one. But I think England are genuinely among the favourites for the tournament, and. I think I, I personally, I think they've got a very good chance of winning it. And I think that that this is where people have been disagreeing with me in the last few months. People say, I think Southgate has had a lot of criticism. I feel as though there's been a sort of like um, willing ignorance about what he's done, which is that I think he's tried a lot of different combinations of players in the squad. I think he's dealt with injuries in certain positions that he's, you know, he, he has players that he relies on essentially. And I think that, for example, Calvin Phillips has been, essentially unavailable to him for the last year. Yeah. Um, I think that he, 
I think he's reverted to the the core of the squad that got him to the last to the last four of the last two major tournaments that he entered. And I think that you'll see him revert to the team that he knows works well. And I just I, it's that tournament football thing. They score from set pieces. They can like create chances um, in like individual moments. Very good at managing games once they go ahead. Admittedly, the Euro final and the World Cup final are two terrible ex- World Cup semi final are two terrible examples of them managing games. But they are very good at doing it generally. generally yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I think I think the 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 issue is that you know the doubts over Calvin Phillips's fitness. I think I think again, like people will assume that Bellingham's going to play. I think that's not the case. I would say that Phillips, if he's able to play against Iran, will play. Um, if not, take the position at the end of the, the the group. Bellingham is brilliant. I just think Southgate trusts Phillips more, and I think that you know you look at Sterling, you look at Kane, you look at Saka, you look at Foden. That's the that's the key players that'll start every game and then you look at the bench you look at Grealish you look at Madison Wilson um, Bellingham Alexander-Arnold even Conor Gallagher those are really really strong options for him to send on um, as a game wears on or if he wants to turn it around I, I just think that there's a really good chance that England will find themselves and again it'll be it'll be from this low ebb because the Euros was a bit of a low ebb that was the weird thing people sort of forget that there was a lot of criticism about the players that he was playing uh, I think there was a lot of debate over Henderson ahead of either Phillips or Rice in the field. I think England are a pretty low ebb in terms of what people think they're going to do. I think it would be not much of a surprise if they ended up among the the last few teams in the tournament. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with all you're saying, and I agree that England are really good at tournament football, or have been at least in the last couple of tournaments. I just think there's equal chance of England being in a semi-final and getting knocked out in the group stages. Like that, That's where I'm at with it, because I think that all of these games in this group are going to be low scoring. And it wouldn't surprise me to see England lose the first game 1-0 to Iran and just kind of fail to get going and players maybe not shine as bright as as they expect. And then suddenly you're right against the cosh with, with two games to go. And I, I think this is it. Like that, It wouldn't surprise me again. Like As you say, England could scum their way 1-0 to, to the final. Um, but it's not it's not inspiring me in the way that maybe the first three do. And And even like a Germany, who I don't think are all that good, I think have more options of breaking teams down than this England side or that more options that they're willing to utilize, should we say, you know, I, I think there are elements of England where you're like, Oh God, we're two 0 down. What should we do? And there was a bit, this when England were well, two 0 down to Germany recently. And he was like, well, I'll chuck them on and see what happens. And it worked. And then suddenly it's like, you go back to the next game and it's right back to the, the very defensive phase. And, and right, as you say, that is how you win tournaments. But equally, I do worry that England might just scum themselves out of it basically. No, no, I, I completely get that, and I think I think you are right. It is it? It's not a coin toss. I don't think it's that um, tight in terms Stark, of chance. Yeah. yeah, but I think I think there is a twenty five percent chance that England will just get knocked out in the group stage. I I also just can see it working, and I, maybe that is because I'm slightly in the bubble. I like I try not to be, but I am slightly in the bubble because yeah. it's where I live, right? Um, but we just have to see, I guess, right? Yes, I guess we will. I guess we will. I think there's so many interesting names and it's what makes World Cup so exciting, right? Amitai, thank you so much for jumping on and talking tournament favourites with us. Thank you very much, Jack. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Moving on to our next segment and my next guest on the roulette wheel. Delighted to be joined by the Athletics' Peter Rutz, the top top scorers. How you doing, mate? I'm really good, thank you, mate. How are you? It's nice to, to have a chat and we're not talking Fulham. Well, we might talk things a little change. bit. We might talk a little <laughs> bit about Fulham, but we'll, we'll take things away from Fulham for the main part. Yeah, I'm very excited in full World Cup mode and this is moving very nicely. I'm enjoying myself with all my guests. Uh, P.O., let's talk top scorers. There are some big names. There are some smaller names. What have you got for me? Yeah, I think it's really interesting coming into the tournament, looking at who will become top goal scorer. It's one of those where you kind of need... I feel like there are some set requirements. You need a good start. You need a good grounding. You need some good fixtures in the group stage. You've got to build that core number of goals behind you. And then you want to go quite deep in the tournament. You know, looking back historically at the the numbers that you need, the number of games generally, you're looking at about five, six, seven games, ideally. And especially in the more recent, more modern tournaments, you're looking at about six goals. Six goals, it seems to be the, the common denominator i mean if we go further back we're not looking at your, your just fontaines in 1958 and getting 10 in 1970 <laughs> yeah. right yeah fontaines 13 so i don't think we'll get that but you, you never know um but that that's sort of the requirement so i think that really does factor in what kind of group you've got how your team is built you know are they geared to getting the most out of a, a number nine say or is there a goal scoring winger that's going to deliver the goods um and that's why you keep, there is always that scope for a surprise. You know, there's always that room for a team that maybe they don't score a load of goals, but they've got someone who always you know, delivers. Um, and yeah, there are the household names. And I think when we look at the names and go through them one by one, we'll see that, that the contenders are who you expect. Um, and then maybe one or two outsiders. And, and I think that will depend on just how well their teams perform. I mean, it seems obvious, but and how far they go, because you need those games and, it's it's rare that you get uh, I think it's an Oleg Selenko where it's like three games in the group stages and you've won you've won the golden boot but but maybe yeah. but maybe or Fernando Torres getting the golden boot at the Euros once when he didn't start a game right, one of my personal favourite golden boot winners uh, for Spain that year right let's get into the list though shall we who have you got in your mixer well so this I, I'm I'm starting out with France and I feel like there's a there's a slight divide within me because you know there is the 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 holders curse and this is France this is a France team with a midfield that is not their first choice really ideally probably being blooded slightly earlier in a major tournament than Deschamps would want and I think that matters um, but then I look at their group and sure De- Denmark are a very good team a very solid team but I think there is room as I was talking about earlier, to just build a good number of goals. Um, and that's where I see Karim Benzema and or Kylian Mbappe. And I'm basically torn between the two in terms of who will score. And I feel like you're looking at the form of both. You know, Mbappe started the season strongly, as he always does with PSG. Benzema, fresh off a, a Ballon d'Or win. You know, this is a really well-set opportunity, I think, for either to, to really fill their boots. So for me, they're the go-to for the first options. Um, 
because of how important they will be to Deschamps' team and then the quality they have. And when you look at the group, you know, Australia aren't um, the strongest team, not like the Australia sides of old that we're used to, where you had that sort of Premier League core, your, your Harry Keels, your Mark Badukas, your Tim Cahills. Um, and then, of course, there's Tunisia as well, who, who don't excite me at all. So while there is some difficulty and there's that curse, of, as I mentioned, I, I I feel like France will should should have a good tournament um regardless of, of those issues and and if they do they will have uh, the opportunity to, to to score some goals yeah I think they might explode out of the blocks I worry for France as they come up against better teams with with that midfield and whether the people can get into it but on the whole when you're looking at the group you think yeah the these sides should not hold Kylian Mbappe you know even Olivier Giroud coming off the bench you can mm. see him bragging a couple of braces off the bench late in games Griezmann playing behind them in that 10 role. Can he start to pick up? You know, his form's been better for Atleti. I think if you're looking at the France players, there's some safe bets in there for players who are going to open up well. And if you open up well, you're in the mixer. Uh, let's move on, though, to the next... Well, I was going to say player, but it might be a side. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, it will be a side. And I, <laughs> I feel like I'm doing this the wrong way. It's got to be individuals. But I think it's important to go through the, through the major... The, the, the major contenders because they stem from the you know the, the major contenders for the tournament and so you look to Brazil next um I feel like this has the makings for Neymar's tournament um I think we discussed this quite recently on another podcast where I looked at Brazil and you go favorites favorites comfortably lots of household names very good in qualifying scored a lot of goals goals from a lot of different places as well yeah um but then, of course, it's Brazil, and uh, they always seem to come into tournaments as favourites. And their group is difficult. There are three other teams uh, in that group: Cameroon, Serbia, and Switzerland, who will cause problems and not make it easy at all. That said, as I mentioned, you know Neymar's coming into this tournament in really good form. You know, I feel like he's in a position where he's not been since joining PSG. Was it eleven goals, nine assists in Liga? He's thirty. Very comfortable, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 set up very nicely for him, and and. Sure, you know, Brazil scored loads of goals in qualifying. 40 goals, wasn't it, in qualifying? And, and Neymar only scored eight. I mean, that was second most in South American qualifying, but Brazil liked to spread the goals around. It's not like they've got that codified number nine, but they have that quality. And I think Neymar is so important. And the way they set up under Tite, I, I can see this being Neymar's tournament. And part of that, I could comfortably see him reaching six goals if we're using that as a, as a benchmark. Especially because we assume he's going to take penalties and all free kicks around the box, which is, you know, going to be important. I, I think these are one of the what that's penalties, especially mm. one of those things that's maybe needs to be considered. If you're not your team's penalty taker, the chances are you're not winning the golden boot. Like it, it takes yes. something quite special to to win it without penalty goals. So when you take that into context, I think Neymar is, is a good shout. I wonder if Richarlison might be as well. He's been mm. very, very good as a nine for Brazil uh, and quietly behind it. I, I think he might just be the man that, that gets them going and gets them rumbling in these first group games, just as everyone starts to feel themselves out. I think Richarlison might be the kind of dynamo wildcard in this team. So I think that him and Neymar are, are probably the two good shouts from Brazil. I assume you're going to flip next to uh, their great South American rivals. I am. I am. I am. It's interesting you mentioned about set plays, though, as well. Uh, the tie-breaking element is really interesting because the first thing they do if two players are tied um, is, is they take away goals scored from penalties. So it's based on goals scored from open play, apart from free kicks, of course. Um, and then, then it goes to most assists, which is how Thomas Muller won it, I think, in yeah. 20, 2010. Um, so, so maybe that, that could be effective. But um, 
Yes, let's pivot. Let's stay in South America and let's pivot to Argentina uh, and their 35-game unbeaten run. Lionel Messi's, you know, likely last World Cup. Has he said it's his last World Cup? Yeah, he... I mean, he has, but he's also retired from international football before. Yeah. So, I mean, take everything with the pinches of salt, okay. I'd say. And to Lionel Messi's likely last World Cup. And um, a team that looks good, a team that looks really well-balanced, a team that's playing for Messi, you know, in slightly more of a withdrawn role. Um, so obviously the go-to is Messi, but also I want to mention Latoro Martinez. Yeah. Um, the way he and Messi have played together for Argentina is really encouraging. And I think that partnership for either really could, could benefit them. You you just need service, you know, and that's where some of the more wildcard options start to come into play. And we'll talk about those, but for a team that will likely go deep in the tournament, have a good group stage, good good opponents against. They've got um, Mexico, Poland, and Saudi Arabia. Saudi yeah. Arabia. Um, so that's it. Bodes well. It bodes well. Um, and you can see Argentina going deep. And, and that, that that those are the key ingredients for me. And and I, you know, Martinez has started very well. He seems to have good relationships with so many different forwards. Um, we've seen him get the best out of um, Lukaku, for instance, and in, uh, Inter and. That could be really beneficial, I think, for for Messi's hopes if he is to to go on and, and secure that golden boot. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because Messi's become this kind of creative playmaker, right? This is he's at the pomp of his powers. Yes, he's still scoring goals, but he, he looks for the pass more than he looks for the shot. I think, and and that benefits Lautaro massively, who is a very very good goal scorer. He's my pick for golden boot. He's the one that I, I, I'd be putting my, my, my money on. But it's going to be very interesting to see how Argentina share those goals around in the same way that Brazil did. Um, you mentioned it there. There's a couple of outside shouts. I think it'd be nice to nice to come on to them now. Yeah. Uh, first one I'm going to go for is Memphis Depay yeah. um, with the Netherlands. Um, top goal scorer in European qualifying. Plays in that sort of central role under Louis van Gaal. Um, he's not far off all, their all-time leading goal scoring record which is Van Persie on 50 so I think he's on 42 I don't think he'll get to eight in the tournament but you know the Netherlands are they're a bit more of a stable outfit um Van Gaal is a good manager in tournaments yeah, I can very see good you know, one game by game manager isn't he absolutely absolutely um and they, they they do and Depay delivers on the international stage um perhaps in a way we haven't really seen at club form with Barcelona um but he's very important to the way the Dutch are playing you know, I think OVG will switch to that back five, it looks like, um, coming into the tournament, which, we, which we've seen before under him yeah. at, uh, in a World Cup. I think there'll be opportunities there for Depay to, to score some goals um, and probably one that not many people are expecting, at least from, from, a, from an English audience anyway. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting because I think Depay, you know, again, we talk about soft groups. I think Group A is about as soft as you can ask for if you're the Netherlands. And when you're looking at that, you go, could Depay pick up five or six in the groups? I don't see any reason why not. Mm. There's nothing screaming at that group that's going, Depay won't score a bag full here. And he is their go-to goal scorer and he is their penalty taker, all of the above. So I think that's a really good shout. Uh, and then moving on... Um... I think we need to talk about Alexander Mitrovic uh, for obvious reasons. Um, See the smile creep back across my face. Yeah. <laughs> um, for those who don't know, I, I cover Fulham day to day, and, and Jack, of course, is a Fulham fan uh, regularly on Fulham Mission. We we've watched the big man hit um, extraordinary a lot of goals, heights. a lot yeah. of goals, 
50, 52 goals in 56 games under Marco Silva at club level. Of course, he's Serbia's all-time leading goal scorer. There is that slight injury doubt. It looks like he's going to be okay for the opening game. But why why I mention him, of course, it's Dusan Vlahovic as well, who you can't ignore either. But the way Serbia is set up for the service he will provide, and we've, we've seen him score goals in qualifying, eight goals in, in European qualifying, important goals as well, like the, the header against Portugal to, to secure um, their passage to, to the tournament. You know, you've got Kostic out wide on the left, who started the season very well at Juventus. Dusan Tadic, of course, at Ajax, it just seems to work perfectly. There's a really strong attacking element to, to Serbia. And, and I, I like Dragan Stojkovic. I think he's got an aura about him. And I think that's quite inspiring for, for the players. And I think that's why, for me, they're, Serbia are a dark horse for to, to go far in, in, in the tournament. Um, it's, you know, whether whether they can overcome what is a difficult group, as we mentioned earlier, you know, there, there will be some surprises, I think, in that group. Um, but I wouldn't be shocked if they came from Serbia themselves. Um, and it's set up for, for Mitrovic to have a good tournament. Everything seems to have gone in this direction. And, and you know, he's one one thing that's so important is set plays, you know, especially at the World Cup. You know, the last World Cup in particular, there are a number of goals from set plays. Mitrovic is a handful, uh, to say the least, um, from deliveries. And in this in this kind of knockout format, I think it can really suit him. And and he, I could see him picking up a number of goals before, say, Serbia go out if it were to be quarters or or even further. You know, um, that's that's why I would wouldn't rule him out. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, you're looking at that. You said Kostic, but also Milikovic, Savic playing from deep, having an incredible season in Serie A. Um, Zivkovic on the other side, cutting inside and, and delivering onto the back stick for Mitrovic. It all seems set up to to play to his strengths. And I, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch Serbia uh, across the tournament as a whole. Any more for me? I have a th- well, the, the rest, it's it's difficult, I think. Do um, we do a best of the rest very quickly? Best of the rest. Um, I think you can't rule out Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, I know there's a <laughs> there's a lot of noise around him at the moment, um, and Portugal. But Portugal have a very good team, and if Ronaldo is a staple in that team, Ronaldo scores goals. Um, I, that, that that squad is good enough to go very far in the tournament. Um, and if they go far in the tournament, Ronaldo is going to score goals. So you can't rule him out either. Um, Romelu Lukaku. I think there's not really been much discussion about Belgium at all, to be honest, in the same way that they have been before. I know we're coming past the, the peak of their golden generation. Um, again, knockout tournament, the type of player, the type of number nine, a, a clear goal scorer. Um, and then Alvaro Morata is the other one I've got written down. Um, of course, with, with Spain, it's, still, it's quite a young team, isn't it? There's some really good, talented young players. It's a, there's a lot of excitement around that team, I think. Um, but I, I, I kind of worry in that group. I feel like you know Germany and Spain are quite quite similar actually in terms of their their sort of tactical makeup now and how they look and I, you just feel there's maybe maybe they could stumble. Maybe, <laughs> I'm look I'm looking I'm looking uh, I'm looking for uh, for the big nation that falls. Um, but there, there's a good atmosphere around Spain I think and that that yeah, will help and, and 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 there's enough creativity in that side to create good chances. Um, I think Morata steps up. I think I, I think that's a nice bet. I, I think it's one of those ones that you're looking at and going, yeah, I can see Morata. Just coming into his own this tournament, being like, "Come to me," you know, all these young younglets who are around, and, and and kind of being like, "I'm the main man." And yes, I don't always score lots of goals, but he has everything you want in a striker, apart from maybe that clinical instinct. But if they provide him chances, he will find the goals, and and especially if they're sliding him through, you know, where he likes to run in behind. 
I could see Morata having a good tournament. It's definitely, it's definitely, definitely possible. And I, I think after that group, you're, you're looking at, you need someone to, to, to score a hat for in a single game, I think. I've, I mean, I've got Robert Lewandowski written down, but then I've got next to him no World Cup goals yet, which is really, yeah, really surprising. Um, yeah. Again, a high-caliber player, the type you can score in any given game, whether he's got the support around him to deliver that, that's, that's really important. Indeed. Indeed. Well, Peter, thank you so much for jumping on with me and talking top scorer. It's been a real pleasure having you here on the Athletic Soccer Show. That's always a pleasure, Jack. Always a pleasure. I'll see you for the tournament. I'll see you there. See you there. We keep spinning on topics and guests alike. And next in my star-studded lineup is Jeff Ruta, staff writer of the Athletic based out of North America. Jeff, how are you doing? You well? Yeah, what's sleep anymore, right? But it's uh, it's all good, Jack. It's this is what we do it for, right? Like it's th- these first stretches of a World Cup are a grind, absolutely, but can't beat it. The best really type can't. of grind, the best type right. of grind, the one, the ones you enjoy the most. I, I do, I don't envy your your sleep schedule. For us, the games are <laughs> ten a.m. to ten p.m. I'm having a, I'm having a delightful time, perfectly, you yeah. know, in terms of Excellent. and how the football's going to run. But we're going to be talking about young stars, Jeff, and you've picked mm. out a couple for me that you think might light up this World Cup, and so I'm excited to to hear them. Yeah, I, I think that's always one of the most exciting parts about a World Cup, right? Is the idea of these players. You tune in, you expect that the nations are going to be carried by their in-prime, late-prime heroes, whatever, but you always want to see that next generation. You you vividly remember 2006 with Lionel Messi wearing the 19 strip yep. for Argentina, suddenly taking over that tournament by storm. Paul Pogba in 2014, four years before he leads France, right? Like It's just, it's a very exciting moment for Americans like myself. I remember 2002 when Landon Donovan won the young player of the tournament yep. uh, in South Korea and Japan, so... Um, it's one of the best ways to, to just really get into every team at a tournament is to look at their brightest young talents and really invest whether you're actually interested in the World Cup or you're a football manager player who's trying to scout your next wonder kid signing, whatever <laughs> the case is. This is, a, this is an essential segment, I would say. Yeah, well, I completely agree. I completely agree. And, and those breakout stars are often the ones that then go and light up the world for the, for the next couple of yeah. years as well, which, which makes it incredibly exciting. I mean, we could sit here and do a podcast all day that was just this, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. And I'd be Good. as delighted as anyone uh, to sit and discuss them. But we're going to pick out four and you're going to start us off in the Netherlands. Why not? Group A, right? And and I think it, it's the other exciting part is World Cups are usually also the final push for dual, triple, quadruple national players yes. to make their decisions. If they're kind of on the finer margins, you know, my father's from one country, my mother's from another. I grew up in this one, so I have ties to all three. If I make a World Cup roster, it makes it a little bit easier to decide. So Jeremy Frimpon is someone that we're really going to be looking at because he had been so coveted by England, but more so by Ghana, I would say, uh, and then ultimately has decided to commit to Holland for um, this tournament. Yeah, I mean, it's exciting and I love Frimpong and I've watched his kind of development at various different places. Obviously, he's he's run through a lot of a lot of places in his, his young career. And I remember seeing him explode yeah. onto the scene at Celtic and be like, wow, this kid's got something about him. Uh, and then yeah. he obviously made that, that jump to the Bundesliga and things haven't been great for Leverkusen this season. They've turned around of late, but Frimpong has been such a key element to, to that. And even when it wasn't going well, he was one of the bright stars and Whilst he might not start this World Cup because Denzel Dumfries is is pretty much the locked-in right. right back, I do think there's a, a very good chance that he could usurp him. 
I think so. And and I think that if you look at either upside kind of modern approach, I think Dumfries is a little bit more, I won't say that he's a stay at home fullback, but he is much more comfortable in a defensive third than I would say Jeremy Frimpong is. So I could also see a scenario where Netherlands need to make an adjustment at halftime. They bring on a right wing back. They put Dumfries into kind of a wide center back half role, whatever the case is. Um, so it does give some more tactical flexibility. And, and look, if you're a right back, if you're a right wing back, cracking the England squad was always going to be very difficult for him with this current generation in front of him. So um, I'm with you. I think that it makes sense for him as kind of a change of pace. It, it's going to be interesting to see if he can take the field at all. Um, but I think that he can help. I mean, this is the first time in a long time that the Netherlands have entered a major tournament without, you know, Arjen Robin being able to, to facilitate any sort of creativity on the right side. So they are going to be looking for players on that half of the pitch who are going to be able to help funnel the ball towards the mixer. So um, there's a chance. I think that there's absolutely a chance he can play a role. And, you know, with, with Leverkusen, he's, he's shown that he can transition from the Scottish Premiership to... Uh, you know, in a top five league. And uh, when you do have that English nationality, and we'll talk about this with another player right after this, if you have partial nationality in England, it does make you a very prime target for a Premier League transfer, uh, just given the new, you know, uh, post-Brexit rules and everything for registration. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think the other thing that's really interesting about Frimpong is like, I like Dumfries as, as a fullback because, but he does sort of think he's a nine at times. He, yeah, he, he does. Loves, yeah. He loves getting into the box. And actually, you look at the first choice Netherlands attack, if you will, and you, you go, okay, Bergheis probably alongside Memphis Depay with, with Cody Hakpo behind them. Fine. You don't really need the ball going, going wide and, and getting into the box. But you look at the rest of the strikers that the Netherlands have brought and you're going, right, Valt Veghorst is there. Luke De Jong is there. You're going, right, who's going to stick the ball on, on these players' heads? Because yeah. I guarantee you that Denzel Dumfries isn't. Uh, that, that's <laughs> not his game. But Frimpong's a good crosser of the ball. And I do wonder if they do make that switch to try and play with, you know, a big man up top. If Frimpong then comes into the fold as someone who's able to provide that ammunition for a big striker. Yeah, it, it's a perfect fit for that approach. It's in, And it's such a radically different... Usually there seems to be a little bit more cohesion in terms of the, the, the profile of center forward that a, a country will bring, or at least they'll have two of the same type. So they'll have their starter and their alternative looks very similar just so they don't have to completely throw tactics out the window to make a change up top. Not quite this way uh, with this Netherlands side. And so uh, I think it's, it's, it's a necessary... It's a necessary inclusion on their roster. This isn't just a cap tying a young player and getting him to be in the fold for you know cycles to come. I think that he does truly have a tactical role, um, which is necessary given the structure of this roster. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Right, let's move on to our second name, and it's someone closer to home. Uh, and I think that this is a, a really key one for the US because a player that's been missing for a little while, and I think we've seen the gaps in the midfield when he has been missing. He has, yeah. It's it's Eunice Musa for the United States. Uh, I. I completely understand that the focus of this qualifying cycle has been on three other young American players, four, I would say, maybe even five, <laughs> six. There are a lot of it's a very good generation, good right? Yeah. Young, it's a very good generation. I think that we're all we're all nervous to call it a golden generation because we saw what happened to England in the 2000s and early 2010s. So we don't want to necessarily put that on our own players no, just yet. Definitely don't. Uh, 
No, not at all. But I think that there's more cohesion with this midfield than England faced, certainly in the era of Gerard Lampard and Scholes. I think that if you see uh, Tyler Adams has been essential for Leeds in that ball-winning role. Uh, Weston McKenney is still kind of finding his way in a Greg Berhalter three-man midfield, but he is someone who likes to help progress the ball in weight, one shape or form. He's very good off the ball, but when you have a central midfielder who's better off the ball than on it, you do need that alternative, and that's where Eunice Musa is so essential to Greg Berhalter's system. He is able to help with the verticality when the ball goes into the central third of the pitch. He's able to actually progress it into the attackers, whether it's Christian Pulisic on the left, whether it's Tim Weah, Brendan Aronson, Gio Reyna on the right, the Strikers, who is a consistent revolving door for the program ever since Josie Altador fell out of favor. So it's uh, it's necessary. He's I think that he's also a player who does actually do very well, not in that sort of pseudo-10 role. You know how a lot of three-man midfields, one of them really would prefer to be in that number 10, but just yeah. tactically that's not allowed anymore for some reason. Uh, <laughs> he is someone who actually is comfortable in that central part of the pitch and he is someone who can win a ball put go in for a tackle um you know make that pass from deeper and break a couple of lines instead of just looking for the one ball into the box so um he's a really really good fit for a burr system i think that of the top young american players who are coming up now he might be the one who has the highest ceiling um again part of this is having a english nationality means that he is going to be a logical target for premier league clubs as he continues to evolve during his time with valencia but um very exciting player to watch. And I think that he is the one who's been kind of overshadowed thus far in this up and coming generation of players. And, and this is a really good format for him to showcase. Yeah, I mean, I saw obviously Katusa came into to Valencia in the summer and I thought there was a lot of players that that might not be a great thing for, but I didn't think that Yunus Musa was one of them. I, I thought you were like, you could you could maybe do with a little Gattuso <laughs> vacation, to be perfectly honest with you, you know, because you're yeah. right, he had everything needed. Apart from maybe that little snap of aggression that, that mm-hmm. you do maybe need in, in the midfield in, in, in these kind of day and ages. So uh, I thought that that was, was interesting to see how he, how he developed under Gattuso. But I completely agree. And I think he's the glue that holds this midfield together. And we saw in those you know games beforehand where Kellen Acosta stepped in for him and it was him with, with Adams and, uh, and McKenney. It just didn't have the same kind of snap about it. And no. and I think that when you have Musa in there and the three of them together, they're not just very good and, and, and different, good in different ways. But actually what I really like about them is that they complement each other and they're also happy to rotate in and out. And actually the, the, the players can, can kind of move on, move on a player and be like, I know that someone's going to cover me. They can go for a, a line breaking run and be like, it's okay because I know the other two midfielders are, are smart right. enough to step into my, my zone. And with the three of them together coming through as, as a generation, I suppose, it really does look like this is a, a midfield that could be very, very key for the US for, for quite some time. It is. Absolutely. I think that they're very complimentary, but I, I actually want to go back to that point you made about Catuso because it is essential for this U.S. side, because I think in the past, when you think of vintage U.S. performances at World Cups, if you think of 2002, 2010, maybe are the two best examples in recent uh, tournaments that we've actually qualified for. Uh, we've had that sort of grit and tenacity. We've had mostly in our defensive line, but players who have been able to, you know, not back down from a challenge, who've been able to kind of set the tone, say, you know, we're, we're not going to be overshadowed by you just because we're playing in Major League Soccer, whatever the case is. Uh, this generation doesn't have that same sort of feel to most of them. Most of them feel like a little bit more of luxury players. They feel like they're this top young generation. They've already kind of broken through so that some of that... Um, 
you know, just kind of mental fortitude and toughness and actually not backing down from a challenge isn't quite in the DNA of all of these players. And so I think you see it with Tyler Adams. Weston McKinney has no issue getting into the minds of his opponents and, you know, either cracking jokes at their expense or whatever the case is. He's, he's really good at that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but Musa now being able to also jump in and have a little bit more of that bite, I think is essential to the U.S. being able to control games in the center of the pitch because all three of them will be up for that task instead of one of them being reluctantly dragged into it. Yeah, no, I completely and completely agree. All right, let's roll onwards. And should we go to Spain briefly before bringing in someone a little less known? I would love to go to Spain. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that sounds like a great climate. Get me there Can immediately. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The rain pouring outside my house. I'd love to be in Spain. Um, but there is a, well, a global superstar, I think, already here, but ready to make a mark on this tournament. Yeah, there's a couple of them. And I, I think that as you look at Xavi's rebuild of Barcelona, the midfield is always going to be the focus, right? It, it just makes sense too. The, Barcelona is generally as good as their central midfield performs. And and so a lot of people are looking at Gavi. They're seeing him as that sort of next leader of the midfield. But I'm going to highlight Pedri here, who um, I personally can't look away from anytime I'm watching Barcelona play. And, it, you know, tough go of it in the Champions League, better go of it in the league. But, um, you know... I, I mean, come on, he's the new Iniesta, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's always so scary to put a moniker like that, like a generational talent on this young player who's under 20 years old, but he's already looking the part, isn't he? Yeah, I think I think you're spot on. It's one of those where you don't want to name people, especially this generation. You'd be like, cool, can yeah. we just skip a generation back or, or call him like, I don't know, he's clearly not the new Pep Guardiola, but someone of Pep Guardiola's <laughs> generation so that we're not giving those immediate kind of comparisons to the generation before. But I imagine it's right. inevitable. But I agree yeah. with you. I think I love Gavi and I think he's brilliant. Uh, but I, what I love about Gavi is his aggression and his snap um, mm. as more than, his, more than his technical ability. And that's not to downplay that because that's obviously there. But... It's about what he, he brings off the ball as much as on it. Pedri right. is just sublime. It's like he's yeah. doing things with a ball and he's the best player on the play. He's the best player for Spain in the last Euros. And you're yeah. like, this kid has played a full season of football that we didn't even expect him to play. He was just 18. Mm -hmm. And you're going, how is he so good at this age? And he hasn't dropped off at all. No. It's scary, isn't it? You know, it, it, it's scary because, you know, you, you, you worry again, this is a player who's going to plateau too soon, but you don't want to, you don't want to forecast that necessarily. I, I think that on his day, uh, Jude Bellingham is going during this tournament. It's another player who is on this long list of players I sent you that we could discuss. And of course he is going to be so essential to England, but I think that in a Southgate system so often he's not utilized in a way that really showcases Agreed. everything that he's able to do. And contrast that with Luis Enrique, Luis Enrique over in Spain, Pedri's given that freedom. And I think that that's such a fascinating kind of counterpoint to what's going on with Bellingham is if you give a young player that sort of confidence and trust in saying like, look, we're going to put you in a key moment for our country right away because we want you to be able to be in that spot moving forward and not your time will come, which is so often the case. Uh, it just makes them even easier to watch. I think that there's going to be a fantastic matchup for them in the group stage with Germany. Um, but I think that because of Barcelona being stuck in this sideshow, if you talk about Barcelona, you're not talking about football these days, are you? No. You're talking about Unless business. you're talking, talking about, about them being top of the league in La Liga, which everyone seems <laughs> right. to conveniently gloss over. Is, don't they, though? Yeah, because we're all focused on levers and how they operate and everything like that. But, yeah. you know, I think that as a result of that, including with Real Madrid now, of course, winning the Champions League last year, I think that people are kind of forgetting who is part of this up-and-comer if you look at the broader picture of global football and i think that this is the tournament that cements pedri as 
one of, if not the bright young central midfielders in the game right now. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. Let's finish with someone a little bit more off the beaten track. So we'll head up to Scandinavia and Denmark. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, it's a long time coming here, I think, because if, if you're a FIFA player, if you're a football manager player, I, I think Andreas Olsen has been on your radar for four or five years, but uh, it just didn't quite work out for him at Bologna in Italy. And so I, I think that, you know, he moved over to Brugge this year, um, has been so vital for them in their Champions League push um, or their push through the Champions League, I should say, into the knockouts and um, we love dribbly boys, don't we? <laughs> we were talking about this before recording. A dribbly, a dribbly boy. He 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 loves having the ball at his feet. Yeah, yeah. It's like Frimpong a little bit in that sense. But I, I think that what what's nice about Scott Olsen is at this point he is much more well rounded than he was as a younger player. And I think that now this is the time for him to kind of cement that sta- status, uh, not just for Denmark because I think that he's he's pretty well established in that program. But I think that in the continent and in the world this is a, a better chance for him to kind of show where he is in his development um, in combination with that Champions League performance. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think what's really interesting here is no one scored more goals than his five for Denmark in qualifying, right? And that's just yeah. kind of been glossed over. Now, admittedly, Jürgen Mailer scored five as well, and he's a left back. So maybe that's <laughs> right. part of the reason that Denmark shared the goals around. That's fine. They don't have a real yeah. number nine. It's okay. But when you look at it, you go, right, he's someone who could be this tournament's breakout star because i think denmark are good and going far in it and without and you know obviously the stories are going to revolve around christian erickson and then last time it was about damsgord coming in and and stepping in for him and and being very impressive and that's fine and damsgord got his move to the premier league off the back of it that hasn't gone so well but you know we'll cross over that for now (laughs) i think he'll be i think he'll be fine in in the long term but then you go, right, so who is stepping up now for this Denmark side to score goals when they need them? And I think Skovolsen is a good bet because, you know, a lot of it funnels down that right-hand side. It will come down Mailer's side. He'll get across and suddenly the extra man is there. And if that's Skovolsen, he is going to step round you and score. It's just, you give him the space, a yard of space in the box. And he's been so clinical this season. And, and I'm really, really intrigued to see how far he can take that at the World Cup. I think it's going to be crucial for Denmark for him to carry that form in as well, because I think that so often when you get to a tournament where your best player are playmakers and they're not actually finishers, you rely so heavily on set pieces. And I think that you get into these sort of finer margin contests where in the run of play, you're just trying to progress, trying to progress, and you can't quite break it down. You don't have that player you're confident this is a very United States men's national team problem. You don't have that player in the final third that you're really confident <laughs> to take that shot in the box. So you have to find alternative ways to score. And I think that it does limit your potential. And I think that in group D, um, I mean, like, look, if you're looking at this as a tournament for Denmark, not only do they want to get out of the group, they want to advance, like you said, into the quarterfinal, semifinal, put, make a push for the final if they can with this generation of players. And if you look at who's on the opposite side, who would be waiting for them in Group C? If you finish first in the group over France, it's a tough ask. But if you're able to get a draw there and you know win the other two games in the group, you might get Mexico, who always loses in the round of 16. Yeah. And that is a much, much more favorable draw than having to play against Argentina and Lionel Messi um, in the round of 16 if they win Group C. So I think that it, it's also not just a chance for him individually, but I think that he is crucial to Denmark as they look to you know, not necessarily overperform, but really put it all together um, and make as deep a run as possible in this tournament. Yeah, and I think it's something that they can very, very feasibly do. So I completely yeah. agree with you. Jeff, thank you so much for jumping on and talking Young Stars with us. It's been a real pleasure. Anytime. Like you said, I could do this all day. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Cap. 
This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The wheel keeps spinning and I'm on to the latest of the great pantheon of guests I have for you today. I'm joined by Tivo Football's John McKenzie to talk surprise teams at this World Cup. John, how you doing, mate? I'm doing well. I am in the calm before the storm. So, uh, yeah, we're a few days before the World Cup kicking off. So I'm just enjoying the break that I have so far. Yeah, exactly. It feels like we're just we're just really getting into it. The ramp up has, has begun completely, but it's been very exciting over the last couple of days doing all the preview stuff. So I think I'm fully in World Cup mode now, if you will. We're going to talk surprise teams, John. Now, this is up to you how you play this. So I'm going to just basically throw the floor to you. Yeah, so I've just done a video actually for TIFO IRL looking at some of the teams that I think could be fun to watch that may, maybe people aren't expecting to be fun to watch. And the way that I did this was I thought, you know, I could just pick random teams that I think are fun to watch or I could try and get a mixture of different play styles in there as well. So what I did is I, I drew up a play style map for all of the, the different teams at the World Cup. Um, so I've got five different categories. So very, very boring sounding things, but high pressing possession. Uh, so this is teams who are going to try and play football like the elite sides do. So I've got uh, Germany, Spain, Brazil, Netherlands, Belgium in there. I've also got Denmark, who I think a lot of people will uh, are tipping to be the, maybe not dark horse, but the team that are going to do well this this tournament when they're yeah. playing in that way. But then I've got a couple of um, a couple of teams from Eastern Europe, Croatia and Serbia. I think have gone a little bit under the the radar, um, particularly Serbia, who I think we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. But we've also got Qatar and uh, the USA in there. So obviously there's there's a lot of teams. In, on my on my um, in my playing guide, who are going to play in a different way in the World Cup than they did in qualifying. Yeah. So the US, I think, will play in a, a slightly different way. And as we know with Qatar, it's uh, it's quite a, an interesting um, sort of origin story for that football club as well. Um, with relying as they do with a lot of players from Al Sadd who've played, I guess, high possession football as well. Um, but yeah, Serbia is the team that I really wanted to talk about. Um, so do you want me to just jump in and have yeah, a Yeah, let's, have a let's start with Serbia. So, you're, you're preaching to the choir when you're talking about Serbia. <laughs> so I, I'm delighted to start with them. Yeah, so I think the, the, the most fun thing about Serbia is they play with like two out-and-out strikers, which I think they're pretty much the only team who do this um, in, in terms of like target men nines um, in Dusan Vlavic and, um, and Aleksandra Mitrovic, uh, who you'll know all about, of course. Um and they're playing this, this sort of 3-5-2 with fun wing-backs. So they've got Filip Kostic on one side, who's recently moved to Juventus, playing on the same side as Dusan Vlavic. So they're going to have that dynamic between the two of them. Uh, and then they've got um, on the other side, I'm going to make sure I, I get his name right because I, I, I kept saying the wrong first name, but uh, Andrea Zivkovic, um, who is playing at Pauk in, in Greece. Uh, he's more of, a, he's sort of a, more of an attacking player, but he is um, inverted, so he's playing as a left-sided, uh, a left-footed 
wing back on the right side. Yeah. So he's going to come in and, and get a little bit more, um, a little bit more um, dangerous one v one situations for fullbacks of the opposition. Um, and then you've got obviously Dusan Tadic, who is everyone knows all about as well as a creative force there. Um, and yeah, I did, Milinkovic Savic as well. It, just a really really fun team. I think they're going to be really really um, aggressive going forward. Um, they're also going to be very dangerous from free kicks because. There's everyone's over six foot, pretty much. Apart yeah, they're from, massive. Uh, a couple basically. of players, yeah. Um, so I just think that they will be uh, a really fun team. They're going to come up against Brazil early in the, with their first their first fixture in that tournament. Um, so it could be the case that they get completely slapped around by Brazil, and then they come out in the other two games, which they will then have to win and be a little bit more um, a little bit more conservative. Uh, but hopefully. They'll get through that game against Brazil and then be really aggressive in the other two games. I think they'll be really fun to watch off, off the back of that. Yeah, I think they're going to open up Serbia. And look, when you look back to the great Serbian teams that we've seen over the last 10, 15 years, they've mostly been based on big defensive solidity, right? They are one of those things. And now you're like, oh, we've only got attacking players. We may as well chuck everything out. And now Nikola Milenkovic is still a very good player, obviously, but... Across the board, Serbia are heavy weighted to the to the top of the pitch. And I think it makes you're right. I think it makes them incredibly exciting. And I think these games are going to be very open. They're, they're games that Serbia will look to flood forward in and, and look to get these big men in the box. And like you say, I think this means that overall they're going to be one of the teams that people enjoy watching more in this tournament because we're going to see a lot of cagey possession stuff, especially from weaker sides who are going to try and nick one nils against against the big guns. That's what you do in tournament football. It's fine. There's no problem with that. But Serbia won't do that. They'll come roaring out of the blocks. And, and I wonder if they get that first goal against Brazil, if it all just starts to throw the entire tournament into, into disarray from early doors. Yeah, I mean, it, it should be a formal. I think they've got, they've got Switzerland and Cameroon, I believe, in their group as well. Yeah. So um, I think they'll be comfortably better than those two teams. I think they'll be the second team in that group uh, by the time the qualifying rounds finish. But yeah, it's just that really interesting dynamic, isn't it, of playing the team that you're you're not expected to win first and then having to get your points in the second and third game, I think will make it kind of interesting for them. Pressure on, pressure on. Yeah, okay, cool. We'll roll on from the serve. So I do hope have a good tournament. I'm worried that Switzerland just playing really, really regressive football is going to nullify mm. them and they'll lose 1-0. But alas, let's hope for attacking fun. Who's next, John? Yeah, so in the next pot i've got high pressing direct attacks so um i've got argentina uruguay senegal canada and saudi arabia in this one so these are teams who are gonna um they are gonna press really high try and win the ball back and then spring counter attacks from from those sorts of situations so yeah argentina you can maybe put in the high pressing possession side but they i think they 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 do like to to play press high and, and, yeah. and play in transition as well depending on on how the game's gone but uruguay obviously darwin nunes is, is going to help them play in that sort of way so no doubt they will they'll be doing that but canada is the team actually i wanted to talk about a little bit i suppose a lot of people are, are ready for canada to be okay this tournament yeah um so maybe maybe this isn't quite the surprise that that it could have been but um I think that they're going to be they're going to be an interesting proposition. They've got John Herman as as their manager, and he's obviously uh, done well with the women's team on the international stage as well, um, which makes this kind of kind of interesting. And he's got them playing in a, a, a really interesting manner, I think. And they're actually playing at the moment. Um, they're playing at a sort of yeah, really interesting formation because obviously the the big thing for Canada is that they play Alfonso Davis, who is of, of, of uh, Bayern Munich's parish, um, plays as a left back, obviously for Bayern Munich, but plays in this sort of weird sort of ten left attacking berth where he he can sort of 
defend on the left-hand side in a more advanced area, um, can drift inside, opening up space for Sam Adekugbi of uh, Hataya Sport in, in Tunisia. And that, so, so Davis pushing across opens up that space for him to, to go into. And so, so the, you have your back three then sort of, back, back four becoming a back three. Um, they, they'd be playing um, Tejon Buchanan on the, on the other side, um, who's a bit more of a, an attacking player as well. So the, the formation is very, very flexible. Um, and yeah, again, they're going to be a team who are going to be great in transition. They're going to be really fun to, to, to see as, as that comes out. So yeah, you must have some thoughts on, on Canada. What do you make of them, Jack? I think this is the most exciting group in the entire World Cup. Um, I, I really do think it's kind of anyone's game. I really like this Morocco side. Uh, I think Canada have been great fun. I, I do. I am wary, shall we say, of the fact that obviously this is the first tournament in a long time. It's a youngish team, the Canada team, and I wonder what the pressure of the big stage does. Now, obviously, they've answered that in qualifying. When you look at, I saw this the other day. When when you look at their record away from home and in warmer climates. They do seem to thaw a little bit in terms of, of what they've been offering. And I, I wonder if that's going to have an impact on on how Canada play, because their record in 25 plus Celsius temperatures isn't great. Uh, and this is very much going to be 25 plus Celsius. So I'm really excited about this Canada side and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how it works in action. You know, the way that Jonathan David and, and Carl Larin work as a pair and, and how that actually looks on the pitch. You know, obviously Jonathan David is one of Europe's top talents in terms of, of how he's playing, but I think Carl Lahren is going to be the man that gets the goals for this Canada side. But I am wary that in this group where there's almost no room for manoeuvre, they might just be a little bit short of, of the required level needed. Although I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, and with Belgium, you always have that possibility that they will underperform, I think, which makes any group interesting when the top team is is maybe uh, going to be an outside chance for having having a mess up. So yeah, it'll be it'll be fun to to see that one. Yeah, absolutely. Should we move on? Yes, let's. So I, I've got the middle group is mid block slow possession, which is which is boring. So we're going to move beyond that. But that's teams who I think usually like either better teams who um, rely on talent to get get through um and so they'll sort of play very solid in possession they won't commit too far forward in terms of their, their pressing um and then they'll rely on individuals to get those goals and then there's a few teams i think where they they don't have the talent and they they don't have the ability to actually possess the ball in any kind of structured way so i've got teams like australia mexico south korea who i don't think will be that impressive but um let's move on to the next pot because i think that's maybe a bit bit more fun despite the fact that obviously mid blocks low possession teams do win tournaments so france i've got in that group yeah um they have that talent to, to be able to do that but variable press direct attacks i've got three teams in here ecuador japan wales i know you're very high on wales jack but i was actually going to talk a little bit about ecuador because mm. they are as you say they were in a, they're in a fun group in insofar as uh, group a has like a nice mix of of different um different teams in it um i think it's maybe the team where the outside of the netherlands who are, who most people were uh, pi- pi- uh, picking to do quite well in this tournament the other three teams could all legitimately get through i think um and and so senegal obviously the i think probably the best team out of the uh, african teams yeah um and then as we've already said with qatar there's like not only do they have home team advantage in many respects, um, but they also have this really interesting style of play that we don't know how it how it could 
it could come out but i think and the Ecuador, two the two months that they've just had off to play yeah, as a team exactly. in bond I, I think that's massive i really do yeah so there's a, a lot that can go on here but um ecuador again another team who climate affected right so they play at altitude so um they they obviously have a really good home record so there's it's worth bearing that caveat in mind but um, i just think that that they will be a fun team to watch namely because they've got quite uh, interesting players available on their on their team so um they've got the the brighton duo of of moises caicedo and Purvis Estupinian. we've got piero hincapié who's been playing really well for Bayer Leverkusen, a really good ball playing center back um they've got gonzalo plata who everyone is talking about at the moment as well so um i think that this is they they definitely have the uh capacity to play quite good football and get out of the group um, so yeah, I think they could be um, an, an interesting an interesting prospect as well in that respect. Yeah, I, I like the fact that there's a couple of groups where you go right. There might be a big gun here, but the other three is a full scrap, and and it's going to be really interesting to see how the ones, these ones play out. The Ecuador Qatar game in that regard, not only because it's the opening game of the World Cup, is massive. Because the winner of that game goes into their second game going, okay, well, there's three on the board and we only really maybe need another point in, in order to qualify. And so the team that comes out of that, that opening fixture with the win could well go on to be one of the, you know, the surprise packages that we see. And, and that's the strange thing. I, I think Senegal, for me, will probably most people's pick as second in this group. I wonder how badly the Sadio Mane injury affects how their prospects look in terms of that group. Uh, Ecuador are, are a funny one because I, I really enjoy watching them play and, and especially did during the Commonwealth qualifiers. But I, I do wonder where the goals are coming from because it does just look like there's this big void there. Obviously, Enna Valencia is still there somehow, so still still scoring, although mostly from the penalty spot these days. Um, and, and the rest of it, I, I do look at it and go, well, who's going to pick up the goals here for Ecuador to actually squeeze through? Hmm. Yeah, I, I do think that that could be a concern for them. And um, I think obviously with all of these teams that we're talking about, like once you get into the round of 16, it very much becomes the the big teams come into their own, right? Um, and so much of this tournament is about form. And I think that's almost what the group stages are about. It's about finding out the teams who have got it together at the right time yeah. um, for, for this tournament. So, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how, how that sort of breaks down in, in the group stages. But let's move on to the last section. So I've got low block counterattack, which I think everyone thinks is boring. Um, and I, to a certain extent it is. But there are people out there who enjoy this style of play. And I think if you do it well, um, well done. This can be it can be quite good to watch. So um, the the teams I've got in here are Iran, Tunisia, Costa Rica, Morocco, Cameroon, Ghana. None of these teams I don't think are really going to set the world alight. But I I wanted to just talk a little bit about Iran because they are in England's group. And again, England the England group is maybe quite an open group as well. It's the the group that everyone likes to talk about having the all the teams in the top twenty of the FIFA rankings, I believe. Um, so that's England, Wales, USA, and and Iran. And I think maybe Iran are being a little bit slept on this this tournament. Perhaps they've got that fantastic front three of Mehdi Tarimi. Uh, then they have Sado Azmoun, who's at Bayer Leverkusen, playing as, as a nine. And then on the other side, they have uh, Ali Reza Yakanbash, who we we saw briefly. briefly in the Premier League. Yeah, but never really never really impressed there. But really really uh, dangerous goal scorer in the Eredivisie, obviously. And I think that's the the difference between like a a, a low block counter attack team being good and bad, right? If you have that the the capacity to play a front three that good. I mean, Mehdi Tarimi has played in this weird sort of left narrow wide forward role for for Iran, which is not 
the best position for him, I don't think. To be but, fair, he's played quite um, a lot of that for Porto as well because Evan Nilsson usually occupies that central channel. So he mm. does tend to drift. Yeah, yeah, that, I, I agree. But I think it, it, I think he is probably one of the most undervalued number nines in, in Europe I'd right agree. now. And it's funny, we talk about a dearth of number nines in, in the profession, in, in, in the elite game at the moment. Um, and everyone's sort of scrabbling around trying to find them. Maybe if Mehdi Taremi was a little bit younger, he'd be right up yeah, there amongst some of the names that we're talking about. So that front three, yeah, it's, 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 I think for the international stage is a really impressive uh, unit. So if they can get it together, if they can absorb pressure well and, and then uh, attack on the counter well with those three sort of problem solving as they go, I think they could be uh, quite, the, quite the prospect. Yeah, I like it. I, I do think this side, especially under Carlos Queiroz, who's, I suppose, one of the protagonists of what people are calling sufferable these days. But it, the, these things work for him. And he, he's a master of his craft at this point, someone with all that experience. He knows exactly how to get the best out of this Iranian team. And, you know, he's already started the, oh, it's us versus the world vibes going on already. And you go, okay, fine, all right, this is how it's going to be. Then this is how it's going to be. But I think you're right in that it's very tight, I think, between all four of the teams in this group because, you know, I wouldn't call England, on paper, obviously, their favourites. I wouldn't say that they are far and away the best side in this group, especially when it comes to the fact that they've been playing that very, very kind of restricted style for a long time. And I think a lot of the games in this group, you know, Bahalta's USA, Kairos is around, Southgate's England and Pages Wales. You're looking at them all and going, right, who's coming Who's coming for the game? Who's going to try and uh, and dominate? And I do wonder if people are going to try and sit off each other a lot in this group, if they're going to be a lot of one nils and nil nils and one alls, because uh, I can't see much else happening. But I think that might suit the US, and I think it might suit the likes of Iran and Wales, maybe a little bit more than it suits England, in, in the mm. way that you're going, well, if they're not going to come at us and they're one nil up, we're going to give it to the last 10 and then absolutely hammer them for 10 minutes and, and see what comes of it. So, yeah, it, it's going to be very interesting to see how Iran and set up and and all of these bits john thank you so much for coming on thank you so much all right on to our sixth and final segment of this world cup preview shout out to you if you stuck with us you know it's been a bit of a behemoth but we're enjoying ourselves and bringing us home i've got my man richard amofa staff editor at the athletic richard how you doing mate i'm good thank you mate how are you apart from being tired yeah i'm good no, I'm, I'm enjoying myself. I'm having yeah, a great good, good. time. I've said this to everyone. Everyone's been like, you must be knackered. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm loving chatting to all these people. I can do this, you know, keep rolling through them as much as, as, much as we can. So no, I'm absolutely. enjoying hearing everyone's views about the World Cup coming up. We're going to talk about biggest letdowns. Mm. So I'm going to throw to you, let us start, and then we'll work through some of the, the teams that are maybe on the precipice of not having the tournament that they're expecting. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough one for me because I feel like there are a lot of evenly matched groups this time. I think in previous World Cups, you, you can look at some groups and think, yeah, those two are going through, those two are going through, those two are going through. But I, th I feel like in this tournament, there might be one or two groups where there's a clear favourite. But, you know, I feel like that second space in, in the majority of the groups are, are up for grabs, really. So yeah. this, this one was quite a tough one to think about. But the one I'm, I'm going to go for in terms of, like, teams to struggle, and it may surprise some people, is, is Uruguay. Um just for for a number of reasons, really. Um, you know, obviously they lost to Ivan recently, and I know it's a friendly. But I think the main thing is, you know, first of all, they've got an agent squad. You know, they've got five players above thirty four. Um, and in that case, I worry about you know, can they handle the intensity of the? You know, we've already had an intense first half of the season. You know, will they be able to handle that? And then coming into you know, this intense World Cup where the games are coming, 
thick and fast. Um, and it's hot. And well, it's exactly. Hot. Well, exactly. And, and and that's that's the fear. And that kind of comes into like you know lack of pace at the back. Teams in the group, see Portugal, Ghana, South Korea, all have pace, blistering pace as well. And you know, they're very very vulnerable. And it's interesting because they've got this kind of aging like, defense, but then obviously they've got young, vibrant players who like to press forward. And my fear is that they'll have the guys who want to press, but then the defenders will want to drop deep. And that will leave a lot of space in the middle. And I feel like, especially against Portugal, no side likes to keep the ball, we'll just pick them off. Um, and I feel, I feel like, yeah, in, in, especially against Portugal, they'll, they'll definitely struggle. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. And, and actually, some of the injuries come into play massively here, right? Because if they had Ronald Araujo, you're going, right, that, that kind of weakness is covered by mm. the fact that he is just so good at, at reading those things, but also his recovery speed is excellent. One of those players who can kind of do it all. And with him kind of coming in crocked, and I don't know how much he can play, they kept him in the 26, which I respect because he's that good, but they're not in the knockout stages. You do worry if he's actually going to get any minutes at all. I think this is a fair point. Diego Godin, you know, is still in this squad. Did anyone think that that was going to be the case? Even a year ago, you know, this man got relegated from Serie A with Cagliari. He's not had a good spell, really, Godin. It's not gone to plan with for him. And you're looking at it going, hmm, who's going to stand up here for Uruguay? I mean, maybe they'll just play Fede Valverde everywhere. That's that's my big hope for Uruguay. They'll be like, Fede, you can play everywhere. You just you just sort it out. No, he's capable, isn't he? I mean, he, he is he is all action. And I'm sure he'll, he'll be ready to put his body in the line, as you say, in all instances. You know, he's pop up the goal, but then you see him just uh, putting off a goal line clearance when he's needed. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he's there. But I think another thing with Uruguay as well that was interesting, I mean, obviously, they didn't have a great qualifying stage and obviously they sacked Oscar de Mares and obviously the legendary coach of course but the new coach they've got in now um Diego Alonso quite an experience at that level and although he's, he's got a good record coming into the tournament which I mentioned the Iran defeat but I think they're unbeaten in six or seven now I just fear worry about his inexperience especially at international level and being thrown in at, at this at this top level you know will he be really be capable of holding his nerve you know in those key moments yeah i mean i wonder if they just go back to the old we've seen this before right uruguay before a tournament they go oh maybe we're going to play a bit more expansively maybe we're going to play some wingers and then you get to the tournament you're like oh they've played four center midfielders across the back uh, midfield four again <laughs> yeah, yeah. okay right cool we're doing this again are we yeah um, and i do say that you know I, I think maybe that counterbalances with that that experience they have in the team and just that all action grinta that's going to come through with this uruguayan team and then so that'll be my, my question mark over it but i i think you raise a really fair point about the pace in this group in behind, you know, and Yaki Williams is going to be looking at that back line and going, yeah, please. I'll, I'll have that. Thank you very much. The one thing he wants is to run beyond the back four exactly. and they're going to go, yeah, okay, here we go. Unless they just sit really deep. So we'll see how it goes. But I mean, you mentioned Portugal there. There's question marks over Portugal as well. And obviously this week we've seen this, you know, the revelations about Cristiano Ronaldo and, and how that's come out and, and the relationship between him and Bruno Fernandes is all under question, et cetera, et cetera. I don't really want to go into all of that because I think we could spend hours doing it. Mm. But on the whole, this Portugal side have not necessarily underachieved, but I think that not getting here via an automatic spot, getting knocked out late by, by Serbia in the qualifiers... They're not setting pulses alight. Yes, sometimes that's okay in tournament football because they don't tend to lose by more than one like ever. Yeah. But they've had some results this year that you go, is this the Portugal of old? And could they do with that influx of maybe new ideas and, and new management? No, I, I agree with the new management bit. I mean, I was surprised that, I mean, 
obviously I did run Nations League previously, but I was surprised he, he you know he was able to take them to the World Cup. To be fair, just in terms of like just being stale, and I just think you know in football is always important to try and refresh and try and bring on new ideas, new players, and of course he's, he's one point scored a trophy. But when it's in, in terms of taking the team forward, I think. What he does have on his side, though, is that he does have that bond with the players. You say a lot of them have kind of come up together over the years and it's trying to have that blend of inexperience and, you know, the experience has like, like the Ronaldo's and, and stuff like that as well. So I wouldn't rule them out because there's quality and they do have quality across the field, you know, Cancelo, uh, Bernardo Silva, etc. Uh, <laughs> as well. Um, but look, you know, that's... I think if they're going to do anything, it's going to be in this tournament. And I, I do have I do have expectations for them just because of that reason. As you say, they do have firepower. They've got players who are capable of, of hurting teams. They keep the ball very well. So if they can get out of the group, which you expect them to do, then I expect them to go to, to go relatively deep. I say quarters of finals for them. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, let's move to Belgium because we talk about aging squads with Uruguay and and then Portugal to a point. You look at this Belgium squad, and I think. Mm, worried about this golden generation. I mean, are they going to start Jan Vertonghen and, and Toby Alderweireld at centre-back together? Because I think they might. And, you know, Sam Tide said this to me the other day uh, on Ranks, but he basically said that he thinks that the Belgium lineup will have nine players in it who've played in Euro 2016. And it's like, that's... that's- for a six-year gap, nine players, and you're thinking, okay, where, where where have this squad gone? Is there any kind of new blood coming through? Coming through, exactly. No, 100%. I mean, on the flip side, you can look at it and say they've got tournament experience. And, you know, I guess maybe you look and say if they were going to do anything, it would have been the World Cup 2018 in Russia. But And to be fair, they were very unlucky there, right? Well, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, it, it, but I think this, this is definitely it, though. Uh, this is definitely it. As you say... This is the the not the last dance, last hurrah. But in terms of that generation, that core of that squad who you mentioned will come from, oh, yeah. you know, two thousand. So, you know, it's it's time for them to perform. And I just feel that too many of them are coming to the end of that process. That of course they've got a quality, you know, so De Bruyne, but uh, Lukaku's not fully fit. You mentioned the aging back line as well, and let's say football it's all about pace these days, and they will get caught out. Of course, they'll be thrilling going forward, but go any other way. And I think that's where they've had the issues before. And I struggle to see where they'll improve upon that. So, again, I expect them to get out of the group last 16. If they reach the quarters, and I think it's a good tournament for them, to be fair. Um, I can't see them getting any further than that. Yeah, no, I, I think that is fair. Um, the, the last one I come on to is, is a bit more of a, a rogue wild card, but... There are question marks over this France team, right? They've been in the favourites category in this exact podcast, and I think for rightly so, mm. because you look at the quality in this side and you think, okay, you know, that, that team should be doing well. Full stop, no questions. Like, it doesn't matter, you know, if there's a couple of key players missing. The quality on show in this squad is there. But France are so, so susceptible to a collapse. And, and you know, and there's moments here you're going, is there going to be dressing room disharmony? Is there going to be the kind of things that you either France are boom or bust, aren't they? Like they're either the best team in the world or they're all fighting each other on the pitch. And I'm like, well, which France are we going to see this time? Plus there's the curse, right? <laughs> the, the famous curse where the group, the World Cup holders don't make it out of the group. I got not necessarily question marks, but 
I do think there's a potential of a small potential of a France meltdown. No, I think I think that's valid. I think that's valid. And when when I was thinking about this before, I was thinking, do do I look into France really or, or not? Because look, we know they've got a quality all across the pitch, and we've all seen the the depth charts that have been shared regularly about the you know twenty second and twenty third centre backs yeah, yeah. being better than <laughs> yeah, most, exactly. most countries. He's yeah. still a worldly player, but you know that was a really good squad going into the tournament, but. Can they get that harmony then? You think what happened at Euro 2020 and the whole implosion there? Is it still too raw? There's still elements of that there. And I know they brought in a few new fresh faces and things like that. But as you, as you say, you're always thinking if France are ever going to be amazing. But there is always that element of they're going to fall off a cliff. There's going to be some kind of tension. There's going to be there's going to be something that's going to blow themselves up. But if they can maintain that discipline, look, they've got the quality across the field to, to hurt anyone. Uh, and really do damage and really go far in this tournament as well. So while, you know, there, there are those fears of that, I do feel that, OK, they've got to move on now. Of course, there's no Pogba, no Kante, of course, but they've got enough quality, enough firepower across the pitch to yeah. to cause problems and, 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 as I say, to go far as well. So I really I, I stuck my neck out of line again, but as I say, semi-final, I think, for France. If they can keep it together, I think they, so they've got quality defence and quality for the side really so I, I would back them to reach the semis 100% I think it's an interesting one to be like the only team that can stop France are France yeah 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 exactly <laughs> like, if, if, they, if, they, if they want to show up if they've got the you know the, the squad harmony there look obviously the injury to Nkunku's really unlucky I was really looking forward to seeing him at this tournament yeah, so was I. he's been on fire hasn't he last 18 months you're just like ah, you want to see the, the top players there but you know, it's a shame. It. Like, obviously, straight away, people have been like, oh, Kamavinga's injured him. You know, the, the kind of barrage that Kamavinga oh, got. And I was like, whoa. Like, like how have you gone like this? And what's he supposed to do, you know? It's a perfectly reasonable challenge to exactly. make. Like, right. But, like, that's what I mean about them being volatile. Like, suddenly you're going, you know, Nkuku's having to come out and defend Kamavinga to the French public. And I'm like, this is this is not how it should be. No, like, exactly. Um, no. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Um, Rich, thank you so much for popping on the Athletic Soccer Show for talking biggest letdowns with me. It's been a real pleasure. No, no. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, I'll see you throughout the tournament. Well, that's pretty much all we have time for here on the Athletic Soccer Show's World Cup Guide. Thank you so much for tuning in, either on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much to my six brilliant guests, to Seb, Amitai, Peter, Jeff, John and Richard. I'm going to be back throughout the tournament talking to various people here on the Athletic Soccer Show across the course of Qatar 2022 reviewing the day's games as they go. I've been Jack Collins. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take care. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.